Testing, the modern testing podcast. Join your hosts, Alan. God! Now I'm mad! <laughs> and Brent. I am mindless, agile robot. I must iterate. God! <laughs> As we talk about software engineering, software quality, leadership, and whatever else comes to mind. Now, on with the show. Hey, Brent. Hi, Alan. It's good to be back. Yeah. And thank you for listening. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a rough week, Ellen. I'm sorry. <sighs> I'm sorry. We moved into a we at Unity. Yeah, I think I saw you were in two headquarters or something like that. Oh, so no, oh, no, no, wait, no. That's Amazon. No, 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 no. So uh, Test Bash is going on this week. Shout out to Test Bashers in San Francisco. And Philippe walked by the Unity office, probably the main one in San Francisco where Test Bash is, and waved at it. We currently have two different offices in San Francisco because we outgrew that one. So we have one for ads and one for the rest of Unity. At some point, I believe we will reconsolidate in a larger space. So that's that was my comment about two buildings. But even better, I currently now work in hands down the absolute nicest office I've ever been in in my life. I visited Google, and I visited Facebook, and screw them, our Unity Bellevue office is... Sometimes you walk into rooms and you just laugh because they're over the top. It's really good. It's really fun. Even yeah, You our, were in a weird space before. We were. We were renting some just some random office space. We were shoved in there until we could build something, and we're in uh, Lincoln Square, for those who know, know the area, uh, the new Lincoln Square building which is four blocks away from the old Lincoln Square building where I used to work on Microsoft Teams. But it is very good. We still get uh, lunch served every day. And now we have our own kitchen on site. So we have uh, chefs and food staff that prepare that for us. And it is fantastic. I will say uh, the time. So there was a when when James worked at Google, uh, he invited me over several times to, to go do lunch there and the lunch experience at google is just phenomenal yeah that there's is uh there's this, you have choice there because they have so many people they can be there's different chef stations depending on what you want to do we get one lunch for everyone there's enough variety there it's very good so anyway office is good uh, I missed the grand opening uh the week they moved in i was in europe visiting with my team which was good Europe was good. Got to meet with uh, the group formerly known as my leads because only one of them still works for me anymore through the power of modern testing. Uh, I still coach, mentor, uh, help them a lot, all of them. So that's going on. But uh, interesting conversations about what this means and and how that fits into how, I guess, in, in a, at, a, at a meta level, how what happens when modern testing takes off? And we already had a uh, a message from one listener who did work himself out of a role and a job. And we took care of, we talked about that in the mailbag a few episodes ago. I have plenty of job and plenty of role left, but I'm also used to things with a uh, larger scope. So I'm trying to, f- the thing we're, we're working together on, it's good to have this group of people to work with, is how do you, if you're, you imagine the visual, I guess, is is as I'm delegating more of this work away to developers and other people as we move towards something like modern testing, mm-hmm. what do I fill that void with, that gap with? And some of it's just, you know, some of that scope continues, but what happens is as more of that gets delegated, uh, I do gain more capacity. And it's good to have a plan as you gain capacity and ability to do more stuff. You have a pipeline to fill those things. Uh, I have... A pipeline, but the water's not on full blast. It's trickling in, so I'm working on that. That is, um, those sorts of transitions can can definitely be challenging. Yeah, I think, and I was prepared for it. It just, uh, what happens is, again, with the visual, if it all of a sudden pours out faster than you expected, you go, oh, wait, I got to turn the water on over here. So imagine you have a bucket and you have water pouring out one yep. side. If you have water pouring in at the same speed, your bucket stays full. Uh, my water started pouring out of my bucket faster than my incoming stream. 
Yep. So so the capacity went up as the water level went down. Not a huge issue, but just something we we talked a lot about, like what do we do? What are some options? Just trying to find the best things uh, to do. We is the the group formerly known as my leads. Oh, so we, it's, we not, had our, it's not just you. They're even having no, 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 because they they're in no, no. It's, it's mostly me. Okay, mostly me. All right. So anyway, we we work together. Uh, Are there consequences to uh, no? Have your leads expressed or your former leads expressed any sort of negative consequences? Absolutely not. They're they're uh, they feel no. supported by their new manager. They do. They do. All right. All is well. Oh uh, yeah. Data science. Are we done. Data science. What? Yeah, that's that's what you do next. Data science. I should be doing more with data. And I have a couple options there, but probably not to be discussed here. Okay. Then. I don't know if I've ever mentioned uh, this before. One other thing before we get into the meat of the topic of the day is I think my LinkedIn profile, uh, my advice is, and I did this for a while at Microsoft, is just don't put your title in your LinkedIn title. Don't just for when I did generic employee as my title, as my job title, the random recruiter and BS mail I got from people went remarkably down. It all depends on um, where you are in terms of wanting to explore the, the, the job market. I, well, no, because there's two things I get. I don't just get uh, random job recruitment things. I got two different emails this week asking me if I wanted to be a contract SDET on Windows. We looked at your profile. We think you may be a good fit for this. I said, did you now? Did you? Did you actually respond? No, I didn't. Okay. God. <laughs> I'm like... The, the thing is, I don't wow. respond. And and But what's worse than the random recruiting things is the amount of vendor spam I get, both in LinkedIn and... Somehow they got they figured out my email address. I don't know where, but the amount I get sent to both my Alan at angryweasel.com, which listeners know, and my my Unity account on Will you let us help you revolutionize your QA testing business? With our QA automation tools and, and testers, we can help you improve the reliability and stability of your testing process. And I'm just making up crap, but that's what their stuff sounds like too. And then not only do they send me the stuff that I delete or go straight straight to my spam folder, some of these vendors actually get mad that I don't reply. Alan, you haven't replied to our mail. What is wrong with you? What the hell is, what the hell are you doing? Why don't you care about quality? Not in those words, but but follow-up after follow-up. Can I please have 30 minutes to tell you how stupid you're being by not contacting us? And holy crap, like nonstop. I get 20 a week, and now they're set up. They all go to my spam folder. So I only see them when I go empty out my spam, make sure there's nothing good in there. But it is absolutely over-the-top ridiculous. Like, no, I don't want to hire an army of vendors to test my, web, my website because... 10%, maybe 5%, a tiny bit of what I do are websites. And no, I don't want to write a gazillion Selenium tests. Just this morning, I got a note I got a note over LinkedIn saying, hey, are you interested in Selenium certification? You know what my answer is? That I, I didn't apply? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's no trucking way. So I, yeah, I... That is, and my title is, I think, just quality director and not QA director, not test manager. I want to direct quality. I want to be in charge of quality, which, I, which means I influence a lot of people. And sometimes I don't remember when someone, oh, I signed up for a webinar and I accidentally put in my right phone number and they called me. Oh, Dude. And I didn't, what happened was, is it was a, like a, a Chrome autofill. And normally I, I purposely mm. delete out the phone number or I'll alter it if they require it. And I must have missed it. And they called and wanted to know what do testers do? And said, not what you expect. What do testers do? Not what you expect. Leave me the hell alone. Yeah, I know, they're, I know this is their business. And, but hell, 
And then one last thing is every once in a while, I will, because I'll glance at some of these things and I'll just kind of see what they're selling and go, oh, God, no. Every once in a while, I'll say something, wow, that's actually kind of cool. And I won't give any names here, but uh, I will follow up a little bit and say, well, tell me more about this. How does it work? Is there a demo, cool, or you know, a video, whatever? And then I ask about pricing. And it is a, tools are a crazy market, which is weird given how many good tools are available open source because some of these tools are $3,000, $5,000, $10,000 a head, subscription for $50,000 a year. It's like, wow, that's a lot of money even in Microsoft dollars. Uh, yeah. The, the, but then again, you balance what's only half an employee for a year to have that. The, well, the problem is, is that is, again, these tool companies that are essentially targeting niche markets. Yes. Right. Their license fees have to be through the roof. Yeah, I know. They got to make money. Um, I get it. I get the business model, but it's a tough place to be in. It. I mean, you have only a certain level of business uh, size that can support that cost. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not a business market that I would want to be in. No, be, no. And a lot of times I have to shy it away. Um, there is this, this one tool uh, uh, – that that I really 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 love. It really makes things simple, but it's six grand for a single user, <laughs> and you have to renew it uh, on an annual basis. Yeah, and I'm like, you know what? Um, don't love it that much, and I could rewrite it. Um, with greater than six grand's worth of satisfaction through Python or R for for um, my needs. Yeah, the, right. the the frugality of it. I mean, I'm sure it's the right price for the market, but the frugality of it, of me, my frugalness makes me think, God, that's really tough to justify. Uh, anyway, uh, but vendors, if you're listening, I know you're not. Please stop. If I don't call me, I'll call you. Yeah, I the the vendor stuff. Even the people, I get the same crap. And the problem is, is there is good stuff out there, but I know it's there. When the good stuff, I know it's there. If I don't, I'll find it. So I got one just this week, um, and it's it's one of the few I've gotten recently where where I like, huh. That might be interesting, and it's Facebook reached out. They they're looking uh, to bolster their leadership team in what they call the data analytics space. And I'm like, okay, that could potentially be interesting. Wait, where's Facebook? Oh, Seattle. Yeah, no, because <laughs> I'm not driving or take, working in Seattle. You, you take a bus. You take I, a bus. Nope. Do you want to do mailbags first or do the thing first? Let's do mailbags first because I think it feeds in. Okay. Hey, we have a couple questions from the mailbag. Mailbag. From Johan, his question. There have been a lot of discussions about how to get testers to change and adapt MT. But in my work now... I talk more to developers. So I was wondering, what parts have you found hard to get buy-in from developers and how do you get through to them? As an example, number five seems to be a big thing for testers, but with developers, I've not had an issue with a single number. For me, developers have liked the idea and bought into them almost from the start. And the issues start to come after a while when they understand how much responsibilities they really have. It kind of sounds like he's figured it out already. MT isn't about improving or adapting your testing, as, as an individual at least. MT is about leadership and quality. If you're able to lead the team towards those things and improve that quality culture, 
then you are then you are doing the right thing. Read me the first sentence again before I think in his elaboration he answered it. Well, so the, here's the question: What parts of modern testing have you found hard to get buy-in from developers, and how do you get them? It it depends on the developer. I think in my experience, on some teams, just getting them over the hump of like, oh, you can actually do testing, uh, is once they begin to understand that, things go much quicker. But if you have a, an old school, like I can imagine some developers at Microsoft, you tell them to do testing, they go, screw you, not my job. I would say the, the hardest part of it is, is on that front, right? Multiple uh, folks have pushed back on MT making the statement, but, but dev doesn't want to do testing, right? And now, number one, I'm pretty sure I've said this here before, Right, you don't build a whole test discipline just because some other discipline doesn't want to do that work. Okay, that's number one. Number two, um, once you've worked with the developers, then this is where I would say is the hardest part. When when I did unified engineering, um, it was actually rather easy. Because I, I basically said, you know what, developer, uh, so if you recall, I had a combined team, some that came from XDev, some came from XTest. Um, when I state, stated this requirement, um, it, it the, the test was like, oh, sure, makes sense, no problem, okay? Um, but what I found is as the developers who really didn't want to do the testing, they would take shortcuts and they would ship to prod. And then there was another process that I had where essentially bugs uh, get funded by the whole team. And so, and on the board, it's fairly transparent. So when, when you hotshot dev specialist, um, Basically, gaining the perception of the team has to uh, prepare for an interrupt every time your thing ships. Uh, it, the social behavior begins to to yeah, I get it. Kick in. I get it. I think it's preparing. Uh, there's a perceived perceived velocity drop when developers own quality and testing. It's not perceived. But, it is real. No, no, it's perceived because I'm uh, if because they don't count the rework time that will happen mm. later after they find all their bugs. That's why I mean perceived. So the other thing that I did back in those days is I had the uh, a similar um, sign. You know, like uh, you see at the like, construction sites, a sign that says zero days without incident." Okay, mm -hmm. so I had a similar thing. And I said, okay, guys, when we get to 30 days without anything, lunch is on me. Not Microsoft, me. We're all going to go to Roost Chris. It took them six months to get there. And um, every time it got to like 28, and then one of those developers checked in something and didn't do enough testing, right? The, the, the social pressure kicked in. The... But also having that measure and that goal uh, was something that, that um, helped positive behavior. The last thing, though, because uh, it's part of this where they have this theory, right? Oh, it's going to delay time. It's going to do all um, – it's going to add time delays. Uh, I don't want to do this work in the first place. Once I got through that hurdle, once I got the 30 days bug-free – um, we didn't have a, we got to like 60 once we got to 30 because what happened is that they kept on having to re-arc. They had to rediscuss. They, they both, they added on, uh, the right test cases and it turned that developer completely 180 degrees yeah. to a place where, um, they were upset when I left because they're like, holy crap. 
what if my new manager forces me to go back to this old stupid world? Right? So it's if you make it visible, then the problem that you're talking about kind of goes away. Yeah. But I guess maybe even the shorter answer is uh, there may be some initial problems on some uh, I'll call them legacy dev teams. But but I think in my experience, uh, beyond that, developers are they see much less controversy in MT than testers do. Because again, modern testing isn't about testing. It's about building software in a way that is much more efficient and delivers customer value better and more frequently than traditional testing. So it makes sense. His experience makes sense. And I expect that would be the same for everyone where there'll be less controversy with dev teams. In fact, I think it was, uh, it might've been Michael Cross who, uh, showed the video of my test bash Brighton talk on modern testing, uh, which was the debut of Monty, the modern tester and, uh, his dev team watched it and they said things like, Oh, it's just common sense. So I think that's going to be typical on most dev teams. And, and the ones that freak out are the ones that either need a lot of work from you as a leader to get them there or teams just to run away from and let them die a slow, miserable death of failure. What's the next question on that bright note? Yeah. Uh, from Ryan. Ryan, the Ryanator. For a team that is starting to practice the MT principles, what would you recommend as the first steps? How would you show MT's value to stakeholders, managers, that have a traditional testing mindset? I see now why you thought this would be a good segue (laughs) into the main topic of the day. So let's answer this question for the next 25 minutes. Okay. If you don't mind. I don't. Okay, good. Good. To be clear, and I mentioned this before, but the lead up here, I'll say it again. I have not once ever gone to anyone at Unity, anyone on my teams and saying, here's this thing I call modern testing. We're going to do it. Here are my principles. We should all follow them. That's one, it wouldn't work. But two, it's just not the way I do things. I don't think anyone should do that. Well, I'm just being (laughs) clear. I don't. So I don't want anyone to think that, oh, you can just say you're doing it and you'll show people the the video and put the principles on the wall and bam, we are MT. There are a lot of folks that have asked for like specific um, steps to to do this, and, and so, I'm I'm honestly rather worried about being overly prescriptive yep. because this is going to be a tautology. But leading people, leading teams towards modern testing is a leadership challenge. Yes. So one way, but it's also not an intellectually lazy one. Correct. So, well, let me tell you a little bit about how this came about. I, the thing I'm about to talk about, I gave a talk at the Test Leadership Congress in New York in May, I believe, a keynote on leading a quality culture. And I, at that point, I talked a lot about quality culture, what it meant to me, uh, a lot about leadership, Test Leadership Conference, Congress, uh, but I hadn't thought at least formally about what actually is, like how would you define at a more granular level what a quality culture is? And then maybe just a few weeks later, I was in a conversation at Unity with my manager and a few of my peers. And this idea of like, I start, I was, I had quality culture on the mind. I was talking about quality culture and they said, well, what is it? How'd you define it? And, and I said, let me, I think I can do that. Let me write that down. And I thought about it for a couple of days and, and thought and thought. I said, I don't know what to write down. How do I, how can I quantify in some way or what, how do I describe a quality culture in a way that covers all the things that would, that would 
lead a team towards quality. I very much put a, a modern testing lens on it. Uh, and that I looked at uh, agile and lean and the modern testing principles. I thought, what what makes a team function in an MT way? And all of a sudden, at some point, something clicked. And I do so much work, air quote work, just driving around and walking the dog and thinking that when I spit this thing out originally, it was like an hour of work and uh, it's had some tweaking since then, but not overhauled edits. So what I built after that long diatribe is uh, a quality grid. It's I, I'm pausing because it frequently gets referred to as a maturity model, and I hate maturity models for uh, many reasons. One is just a basic allergicness to things like CMM, CMMI. How about, uh, how about the quality culture transition guide? Let's call it that. <laughs> quality culture transition guide. <laughs> uh, if I had internet access, I'd change it right now in my original doc. So what I did, and the way this worked out, and just to get my thought process before we go through these, is I listed... The hard part was coming up with what were the attributes of a team really clicking on frequently delivering customer value, accelerating the achievement of shippable quality. What does a good dev team, a good engineering team look like delivering that? I was able to break it down into about, uh, I should count them, eight attributes, but I'll read them. Then we'll kind of go through them one by one. Uh, I might have mentioned these on a previous podcast. We'll dive a little bit deeper today. Uh, Quality and test ownership. And I'll come back and go deeper into these. Like who owns quality? Technical debt and maintenance. Code quality and tools, customer data analysis, the development approach, learning and improvement, and leadership emphasis. And Brent, I'm going to ask you to interrupt me whenever you want. Otherwise, I'm just going to talk a little bit about now those headers, what I did. Those those headers are sort of horizontal aspects that yes. you, you think are important I would to expect it. teams to be... In fact, it's probably a good time to interject a uh, partial answer to the question is I would look at how well the team is doing on each of those aspects, each of those horizontals, and some areas they may be more, I'll put it in the uh, accelerate way, some teams may have more capabilities in those areas than others, in some areas than others. You can use this quality culture transition guide love it to uh figure out where one where you are but not to grade yourself in the in the old world of a maturity model but to figure out where you may need to make improvement so let's talk about uh testing breadth wait before you continue on there's there's one thing i would say sure um so uh First off, anything that's taught, uh, the one paradigm here, you often hear it as, you can think of it as a crawl, walk, run type model. Exactly. Right? Um, now, generally, uh, my guidance when dealing with these type of things is first you go through an inventory where you're at, and then you go, okay, how do we get to the next column? Don't try to skip columns generally is what I advise because a lot of times that creates yep. more problems than it's worth. I definitely agree. And but even that, even that approach sounds a little bit too much like the old maturity model approach to me. So what I've had teams do is sort of assess themselves on where they are on the model. Sometimes just the, the QA person on my team, but more more often with a uh, with the dev lead with them. And then not worry about necessarily about getting to the next box, but okay, we've gone through this. Now we kind of we've it's forced us to take a different kind of retrospective on overall on what the team is doing and how we approach software and delivery and building things. And what are one or two or three areas we want to work on improving? And so then, this, so and this then the, the transition guide comes up a lot in retrospectives. And in the incorporation of an experimental or experimenting culture where you say, hey, 
let's brainstorm, come up with ideas around what what actions we should take. Let's take those actions. Let's also determine how we're going to determine if it success succeeded or failed. And if it failed, no judgment call, except if we you know try it again or continue trying to power through. That's the biggest thing that I, so I see. Let me. I have. Uh a gazillion examples of how we've used this. So let me just go ahead go through it. Uh, but I got to get a little bit more. I think the listeners need a little bit more than just the headers. So I'll talk a little bit about how I built the model and what's in there. So I built a transition guide, a model. I call it the thing sometimes to avoid calling it any sort of maturity thing. Uh, but there's a starting level where the thing basically isn't happening where there is no testing breadth, where people assume that doing some happy path tests is enough. What horizontal are you talking about? I'm talking about testing breadth. Okay. This is testing breadth. So if you have a lack of, almost complete lack of capability in testing breadth, you're probably focused almost entirely on functional testing and verification. Um, You may do some other things, but they're not planned and sporadic. Whereas if you are super mature, and the way I built this was to kind of describe what I thought, like, what is it if you're basically not doing this? And what is it like if you are like rock stars kicking butt at this? Superstars. And if you're at the top level, building a a multi-dimensional quality strategy is part of how the team builds software. Design includes that. Your testing approaches consistently cover all areas of like the agile quadrant. If you want to use that model, you're thinking about all aspects of quality. You're, you're continuously thinking about what are the different ways we need to test this? Where do we need to do perf security is involved early uh, as a specialty, but also you're just thinking about all the different things that can go wrong all the time. And we've, uh, we've dealt with teams like this. So there, there are teams that, that do operate at that level. And of course, there are levels in between where maybe you're you're, not, you're you're getting to learn things, but you're not doing them consistently. There's there's levels in between, but the growth is from one end to the other. On the testing breadth, you're saying that there's a multi-dimensional, um, you say, thinking. I don't necessarily think you're referring to a. You know, a traditional test plan. No, I, I said a quality strategy. How do we build this with quality? Meaning, right. if I'm building a, uh, if I'm building YouTube, probably not the best MVP to start with. But if I'm building YouTube, I'm thinking about scale and reliability and security and all those things from square one. They're not like, oh, wow, I guess I should think about scale. So there's the old school 60-page test plan? No, no. I'm just saying... Fulfill this criteria, though? It does not. Okay. Because the old school 60-page test plan was often not a strategy. It was often a list of things and even worse, a list of test cases that would be done against these things. Uh, I don't want that. This is about... And you're playing devil's advocate here. But this is about a full-breadth quality strategy as is planned and executed as part of building the thing. You, you and I have been on teams where uh, illities, any perf or security or scale testing, that's what we did at the very end of the product when we knew we were going to ship in two weeks anyway and we found a bunch of bugs that people, we weren't going to fix because it was just too late because, oh, that's going to be an architecture change. We can't do that now. Yeah, the the other thing I would say in there would be right adaptability is going to be key in there right i think the biggest thing so i think you're trying to express a, an element of holistic uh, um aspects yeah, yeah i want you to recognize like all these things matter and we'll go a little faster through the rest so we can finish well let me I want, no yeah because we're never going to finish go ahead go no, ahead there's Number one, I don't think you're saying anything around prescriptive or or reactive, right? As you know, I don't want everyone, anyone building the 80-page test no. plan. What I'm saying is, saying in summary, that all has to be done before we ship. All aspects of quality yep. are considered from day one to day n. That's it. That's at the top level. And there's steps you can, you can think about what you need to do to get there. In Perfect. between, uh, you, 
again, we can all think of the baby steps. I'm not going to list them out here. Yep. Uh, quality and test ownership uh, at level one is traditional testing. I shouldn't even call it level one. When you have lack of capability, you're doing. There's a test team that does all the testing because it's their job, and it's not. And developers do developing because it's their job. Okay. But at the other end, I could probably set up with the last line in this thing, which I did not get any pushback, even from people outside my team, <laughs> uh, where you truly have whole team owned quality. And one of my gripes with agile testing is even though. Lisa and Janet, Lisa Crispin, Janet Gregory describe whole team testing as everyone owns testing and quality. Often what I see, unfortunately, on agile teams is even there is they iterate, but the tester still does, the tester on the team still does all the testing, the agile tester. Yeah, I don't think that's uh, Lisa or Janet. No, it's definitely not their intent. They they sigh visibly or or with verbs uh, every time this comes up. But I'll read the end of this. The test specialist focuses on coaching the team and assisting quality efforts. Sounds like MT. Um, blah, blah, blah. And then the last sentence where I did not get any pushback, because I've shared this across all of Unity, um, is teams at this level may not need a dedicated quality specialist. Nobody shit their pants. Nobody freaked out. Yeah. I, I, I think we've talked about those things enough on here. We don't need to go any deeper. Yeah. Uh, technical I, Debt and one thing on the last one mm. that I'm tired of, if everyone owns quality, then, then nobody, nobody owns quality. Right. All right. That's it. Okay. All right. <laughs> <I'll> just- <laughs> so tech debt and maintenance. Uh, this is the biggest thing here. Something we talked about is just working from a zero bug backlog. But we also need to recognize that bugs are not the only form of tech debt. Uh, keep your debt paid off. Keep it zero. A team that that is very has zero or a little capability here uh, has a huge bug backlog. They have all kinds of to dos riddled through the code. They have uh, they don't even know what static analysis linter errors they have because they don't run those tools. They have a huge both known and unknown mound of tech debt. Whereas teams on the most mature scale uh, have little to zero, leaning towards zero tech debt. They just don't carry it forward. They pay their bills on time. Something else we've also talked about in the context of MT a lot. Or they they, they cancel their subscription. <laughs> right? To me, a, a bug is not necessarily tech debt. Right? Uh, as we've talked on multiple cases, there's many a bugs that are never worth fixing. Right. But I think just not... Even, but I would say keeping those bugs around, even if you're not going to fix them, that is debt because you end up looking at those bugs over and over again. That's waste is in my That's waste. vernacular. Right. Okay. Yeah. Fine. So, yeah. Fine. Uh, and in between, you can see like, okay, we're keeping things triage. We have a we have a fairly low bug count, but we're happy with 20. And that's, I guess, it's a start. Uh, but you can look at where you are in between and where you want to go and figure things out. Uh, the team that when I started at Unity had the highest bug count and was the crummiest quality is now down finally under 10 total bugs. Uh, that they carry? That they carry. And they're, with the goal still to get to zero by the end of the year. But in fact, another one of my teams that was, when that team got low, there was another pair of teams that were then my new highest in the 30s. And they just got to zero yesterday, day before. So slowly but surely, almost all of the teams in my jurisdiction area care about uh, are uh, still on track to get to a zero bug backlog by the end of the calendar year. And the teams that have gotten there and sustained it, what's their feedback? It's it's freeing, right? No, I know that. I'm curious yeah. of what yeah, that, that, that's how they feel. Yeah, it does. It's all like, oh, this is much better. But they, they, they don't miss doing triage meetings where look at the same bugs over and over and over. No. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah, the, but the other phenomenon that I noticed uh, is that once you get to that state and you maintain that state, it becomes a lot clearer that how bad feature development was for you when you were carrying that bug backlog. Yeah. <laughs> right. The thing I've noticed uh, with all of the teams I've I've put them through is essentially 
this model sort of encourages more scalable architectures. And a scalable architecture allows you to produce features. When you're trying to figure out how to not fund the bug but string a feature through a minefield of a couple hundred bugs, your estimates go slower and your release cycle yep, goes for slower. Sure. Yep, you are correct. Go. Next attribute is around code quality and tools. And this means a team that has no capability here, they compile their code and then they're, and you can see how these things interact because if you're, you're not going to be generally, I have a hard time thinking of a team who had no capability in, in some areas, but were very, very high in other areas. So a team, they're, they're not running, they're probably compiling at a, not at the highest warning level. These aren't independent attributes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. They, they will, just like the modern testing principles. Mm, yeah. So they're not using any to, any code correctness tools, things like code coverage, uh, which is a wonderful tool and a horrible metric, linters, compiler warnings, other static analysis tools, security analysis tools. Uh, teams that are very mature here, their CI runs a crap ton of code correctness tools because that's where we can catch the bulk of those things and that's where they should be caught, not by tests down the road. This is like the level of tests that run before unit tests. Yeah. And uh, then goes with tech debt. So you turn on these linters. I see teams turn on linters and go, ooh, this is bad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run the linter, but we're going to turn off all the warnings. Like, ah, you, I get what you're doing there, but you, you, yeah. Uh, teams that are very mature here, they, they are constantly trying to find holes or risk using code coverage. They have linters and static analysis tools running on on every check-in to make sure that they have the highest code correctness they can. And in in the middle levels, maybe you're you're starting to use things, but you don't look at the results, or you turn or you ha or you turn off a lot of the rules uh, for our linters. Um, you're not. I think teams uh, at a mature level here are also not just running these tools, but they're looking for. Uh, additional tools. It's part of what they do is like, oh, what else can we do to find this? Looking for uh, code correctness tools is part of maybe some of the investigation that comes out of a retro or an RCA analysis. Yeah, uh, the one thing... Um, I guess it's RC analysis. Or otherwise, it's redundant. Release no, no, root cause analysis. Uh, rather than saying RCA analysis is redundant, right? It's like an ATM machine. Anyway, go on. Right. Um... Yeah, the one thing I was actually really fond of um, back in the day was measuring uh, cyclomatic complexity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, at the nice – and even uh, complexity metrics are a great thing for uh, risk. We had – and side tangent here, Unity had a hack week. They had to have one every year. Um, I haven't been to one yet. Uh, my travel is a little crazy this summer. But I did make sure I took a half a day during Hack Week in the Seattle office and just do something random. And the random thing I did was I wrote, again, using some helpers from uh, the NPM library, I wrote a little node app that would look at the files you had checked out, uh, run a complexity analysis tool, which ran a bunch of different, ran cyclomatic complexity, Halstead metrics, and some other uh, complexity analysis and we come up with an overall number and I would flag files or functions that had in just your checked out files that have a high level level over n whatever n was of complexity and because complexity doesn't mean the code is buggy it's a smoke alarm not a fire it means there is risk there yeah I mean the, the one thing that I haven't observed uh, yet is tooling that can analyze how you've put together your code and help to simplify it. Yeah. Hey, if you if you incorporate this design pattern instead of the thing that you did, mm -hmm. you'd be able to reduce but your part code of it by is, 80%. Part of the maturity here is continuing to search for things like that. Yeah. Because chances are eventually they'll exist. Uh, next thing, uh, near and dear to – do you have a heart? No. Okay, near and dear to the cavity in Brent's chest where a heart would live is customer data analysis. 
Yay! Where at a where you had low capability, you don't do it. You don't collect anything about how your products being used. And then you can imagine we've talked about Brent's uh, data maturity model in here before, right? Uh, but I think the lower lowest capability. I would hope this doesn't exist, but it would essentially be your entire team functions off of uh, what's the, name? the founder syndrome. Uh, which is essentially no founder of a startup has ever um, uh, has ever understood why his idea isn't the hottest thing since I don't, pancakes. Yeah, and I'm actually going to read through the model here because I think it'll help explain it. And I'll go quickly. I, I will, I'll skip. So for in this transition guide, I wrote I wrote a couple levels in between to help figure help teams like figure out where they were in the middle and figure out what kind of things they could do to improve. And I have a whole accompanying doc I wrote internally that talks a little more deeply. This will be in the uh, 2028 release of the Modern Testing Book. I'm just making that 2028? Yeah, I figure okay. it'll take that long. It'll, <laughs> it'll be obsolete. Like, oh, we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of how we test software at Microsoft, by the way. I'll need to write a blog post about that. Uh, so anyway, on data analysis, I mentioned like it's data is untracked or ignored. Uh, with a few more capabilities, a little more higher along the transition guide, you're going to have some data track that may be used to understand quality prioritization. Um, data may be discarded if it does not match intuition or anecdotal feedback. Yep. And we've seen this happen, but you're starting to collect data. You just don't trust it yet because it's, it's yeah. It, what, do you, what do you call this? Data affirmed? Yeah. Is it, that similar to that level? It, it was uh, Steve Rowe called it that, but I've now stolen it. All right. Yeah. And I stole it from you. <laughs> Yay me. Uh, and then mm. even before you get to the most you know, optimal level, uh, you may be at a level where the team has at least a handful of metrics in place that help them understand feature quality and customer experience. There's probably some holes in interpreting the data, but those usually address quickly. Uh, instrumentation and or analytics is part of the requirements or done definition and almost, all, and almost always done as part of feature development. So at that point, you're well on your way to becoming uh, data-centric. But like all things that are like maturity models, even if we don't like to call them that, there's a level where that can be okay for a while for some teams. You don't have to get to the highest level in everything. No, I, so that's course, why I like that it's a guide. Right? Yes, it's it's to it, help you read you read through and figure out. Okay, here's something I can do more of. This is actually the way I want it to be used. Is for, I mean, in a very immature quality culture, you might think that okay, once the test team plays with the buttons and things for ten minutes or an hour or a day, then we ship and it's good. But looking at what are all the things that actually influence a quality culture. Two more rows to go through. Three more Wait, rows to go that through. that last one. Can you reread that very quickly again? Uh, no, because I paraphrased what I wrote. So oh. it'll, it'll be even different. So the team has a handful of metrics in place to help them understand feature quality and customer experience. Uh, although there may be some holes, they're usually addressed quickly. Um, analytics is part of the requirements or done definition and almost always done as part of feature development. Okay. Okay. Because what I think you said was instrumentation before. Analytics is a much better word. Yep. I have I used both in here. So, but, right. The, uh, the one problem I also see, and this by no means is a North Star that we're trying to guide people towards, and that is a lot of times you'll see in the traditional world, you'll see a PM with their 60-page spec listing out requirements, and then there's a three-page section of all the instrumentation requirements. Yeah. And it's just a grab bag of random crap. Okay. Here I would say go back to, God, what episode was it? 62, the hypothesis episode where I... I don't know. Now, remember the exercise I walked you through? Yeah, I don't remember. It was in the, I it was in the yeah. 80s. That's and, far more helpful. All right. Really important thing is the development approach. And this is where Lean and Agile come in. Uh, at the at the zero capability level, you have no approach. It's pure cowboy, write it and compile it and ship it world. Where at the end, of course, you have um, a system. Uh, Brent and I both prefer Kanban, but basically you have working in small batches. Flow is high. You probably are using experimentation 
to deliver features or delivering things behind flags. Uh, you have a development approach that allows the team to ship quickly and safely. Which is worse? Try to think through. Which is worse? Big design up front or cowboy? Equally bad. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good question. I'd like, love to tweet that. Uh, well, do I want anarchy or overprescription? Uh, and very quickly, because we're a little tight on time, yep. uh, the last two are uh, learning and improvement. I mentioned earlier, we're, and we've been on teams that don't give a crap about improving. There's no retros. They don't try and get better at anything. They're just happy to crank out their crummy software day after day. Where on the other end of the spectrum, you probably have teams, or you do have teams who retro, they do recognize that retros are the most important things they can do every week. Uh, the whole team, there's a learning organization. Uh, people focus on learning and getting better and growing as part of the software development. And that helps improve culture overall, which reminds me to refer to Lencioni work that shows that uh, organizational health which I think comes from this, is direct, has a direct correlation with product quality. Uh, it does. Um, there's an absolute principle there. That may be of what you just mentioned. You're going to post this up on MT? Uh, at some point. At some point. I'm not sure if I want to share the whole grid yet, but I will. Okay. And then the last level is around uh, leadership emphasis, which I, uh, you gave me some feedback, which I thought about and rejected. I don't think that mandates of thou shalt have a quality culture work. So the, the maturity here, the growth is a little interesting. So we'll just cover it briefly and then you can send us a bunch of mailbag questions and we'll dive in deeper in the following weeks. Is at, a, at the lowest level here, there is no leadership support. Zero. Because they just there's nothing that, that supports sort of that cowboy culture we talked about in development approach and everything else. Um, and that can come from multiple different ways. Yeah, yeah. Whereas as you get a little bit more mature, the leadership communicates quality. Is, they like to say quality is important. It's part of what we do. It's in our vision, et cetera. And at the most mature level, it's you get to a level where leadership doesn't need to be involved because the team has internalized quality is what they do. I mean, it's still part of the rallying cry. Anyway, we'll dive deeper later, but that's sort of how that works. And I didn't get to talk about the examples. So we'll do that. Why don't we plan on doing that next time? Work yeah, for, and, for and there's more I want, would want to, to talk okay. about for Ryan's. Let's figure right out there. a good agenda of topics and things we want to dive into next time. Hope that was a good start to an answer for Ryan's question. Right. Uh, and we'll continue to answer it on the next time we talk on A-B testing. Okay, goodbye, everybody. Bye.